worship this morning. If you are online, drop a comment and let us know you are there. If you are in-house, get up on your feet and worship with us. Good morning. 
It's so good to see you here. Such a great morning to be able to worship together. Just want to give a couple quick shout outs. Um, just want to say thank you to everybody that came yesterday to our Christmas in July. And so Joanna did a fantastic job putting all that together. We had a great group of volunteers that were here. Um, we were able to raise some money that will go later on in the year towards Operation Christmas Child. And with that being said, we still have some baked goods that have not been sold. And so there's a table in the back. And so if you are interested, there's some really good cookies and baked goods and all that stuff back there. If you want to get some, pick them up on your way out. Emphasis on the way out, preferably no cookie eating during the sermon, okay? But you can pick some of those up on the way out, and all of those funds will go towards sending shoeboxes that not only contain gifts, but also contain the gospel, and those are going out to the ends of the earth. And so if you're interested in picking those, some of those up and making a donation, there's a table in the back. And so just encourage you to do that, and thank you to everybody that came out yesterday. As well, thank you to everybody that came out Wednesday night as we went out to Wilshire Park and just able to love on folks there, hand out some information about the church and as well as hand out some waters. And then this coming Wednesday night will be our last Wednesday night connect as we go to Longwood Park back in Gainesville. So I encourage you to be there. Kirk's class will be taking the lead on that one and just our last opportunity before school starts. It's here. Summer has flown by. Um, and so you'll be hearing a little bit more about our upcoming schedule as we approach going back to school. And so with that being said, one of the things I, I shared with you last week that we're, we're bringing back into our corporate worship is the act of, of receiving tithes and offerings. And, and I shared, really, it's just some, kind of something God has been working on in my heart and dealing with me about because we talk a lot about that we want to be a church of vibrant worship. And really by just kind of having the boxes in the back, yes, it was still an act of worship, but it really wasn't an act of corporate worship. And so you still have all the ways to give as normal, but what we want to do is just set aside time in our corporate worship to be able to give together. Why, first and foremost, it is an act of worship. We don't give just simply to give because we need to pay light bills and all of that stuff. We give first and foremost because it is an act of worship. But then second, we give because our purpose and mission are above all else. We give because we value seeing disciples made here in Hall County and Banks and Habersham and the surrounding areas. We want to see disciples made. We want to see people come to know Christ and walk intimately with him. And so here's the beautiful thing. Yes, God has blessed you financially. And then you and I are able to then leverage that for the gospel. And not only leverage that for the gospel, but to leverage that for eternity. So what better investment could you and I make? And so that's why we're bringing this back. It's an act of corporate worship, but also because we want to be a church that makes disciples here and among the nations. And so would you join with me as we pray over this time of offering the band will play but just consider an act of worship that as you put 
it in the plate. It's as though you are lifting up a song. As you put it into the plate, it's as though you're opening up the scripture. It's just as much an act of worship as anything else we do. And so let that be the posture of our heart this morning. Maybe a little bit different, maybe new to you, but let us worship as we do that. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you, we praise you. God, we pray now as we set this time aside to sacrificially give. God, first and foremost, let it be about you. Let it be about your name. Let it be about your glory. Let it be about your renown going to the ends of the earth and not about us. God, we do not exist to build a kingdom of Airline Baptist Church, but we exist to partake and to participate in your kingdom. So Jesus, let it be about that. So God, would you take it and would you use it and would you multiply it for your glory and for your honor? And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. I encourage you to continue to stand as we continue in worship.
So I run to the Father again. 
into your arms again and again, time after time. And there you are, embracing us again and again. Our heart has found so much peace in you. Lord, so we know where we can run to where our help comes from, our solid rock and firm foundation who never changes, who never leaves us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for this time of worship. And Father, just have your way in this place. Lord, we love you and we praise you. despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So as we began this series a few weeks ago, we started with asking the question, what is the gospel? Then we moved that first week and we looked at the, the concept of creation, that the gospel is really the entire meta-narrative of the scripture, that the entire Bible is the good news of what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished. And so in order to understand that, we go all the way back to creation, that God created and it was good. And then as we saw last week, the fall takes place. And all of a sudden, the goodness of God's created order is now broken. That sin enters into the world. And then as we turn throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there is this groaning and this yearning that takes place, looking for the one who would come to make it right. Because immediately after the fall, what does God do? He issues the promise to the serpent. He tells him that you'll bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. That there's this promise of a Messiah that was to come. And just in this, the video that we just heard, there is this promise of a Messiah, even all the way back in the book of Isaiah, centuries before Christ ever stepped foot on the scene, promising this Messiah who would come to bear the sin, to bear the iniquity of the world. And so that brings us to point number three in answering the question, what is the gospel? It's redemption. It's a beautiful word. We, we know the word redemption. We have ideas about 
the word redemption. I, I think that in all of us, there is, there is this desire for redemption. There is this desire. We, like, we love to hear stories of redemption, do we not? Like how many, how many people here are fans of Georgia football? Show of hands. Okay. I know who to pray for this week. I'm just kidding. I don't want to tread on that territory too much. But like we, we saw this all over the news and all over the media, right, with Stetson Bennett. Like he went from being a walk-on at Georgia to then going to, ha going to junior college and then coming back to Georgia and everybody doubted him, everybody wrote him off and then what happens? He won two national championships and finished his time at Georgia at the ripe young age of 37. I'm just kidding, that was a joke. But like that story went throughout the news and the media, right? Why? Because it was a redemption story. It was someone that literally started from the bottom. Everybody had wrote him off. Everybody said he wasn't going to do anything. And then all of a sudden he's winning national championships and is sitting there in the Heisman Trophy discussion. Like he wasn't supposed to be there. Now all of a sudden he's on top of the world. Like we, we love story. Like, I think that's somehow ingrained in us to like, like even secular people like those stories, to be brought from nothing and to have these great achievements. But it, the reality is that's not redemption. Why? Because when we think of redemption, we think of I, I was wronged or I did this or I did that and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps to get to where I am today. But that's not redemption. Why? Because redemption is not something that I do to myself. Redemption is something that someone else does to me. You see, when we talk about biblical redemption, it is understanding that I was a slave to my sin. I was a slave to my brokenness. I was an enemy of God. And yet what does Christ do? He pays that debt to free me from my sin to free me from my brokenness. It's not something that I do. It's not something that I accomplish, that redemption is not something that I do to myself, but rather another comes along and does redemption to me. That is redemption. And so this morning as we get into our text, Really two texts for us today as we unpack this concept of redemption. We'll be in Hebrews 9 and Romans 8. But as you turn to Hebrews 9, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father God, we come to you. God, we ask that you would speak to us now. God, let it be your word and your word alone. And so, God, would you move in this place? Let us leave here with a better picture of your redemption 
and the price that you have paid on our behalf. We love you. We praise you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So we come to the book of Hebrews, and really I don't have time to flesh all of this out, but the, really Hebrews is, we don't know who the author was. We have some theories of who the author was, but we really don't know point in fact of who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. But the, the main audience, the target for Hebrews are, are, are Jewish Christians who are struggling with whether or not to go back to Judaism to go back to the observance of the law, to go back to really what Christ had saved them out of, they were wrestling, do we go back to this? And so really, the entire book of Hebrews is making this argument that we have this new and better covenant in Christ. And so the first thing we get to Hebrews 9 that I want us to see is that redemption comes through his blood. Redemption comes through his blood. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna. And Aaron's staff that budded and tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the author of Hebrews is, is painting this picture that those familiar with the Old Testament, those familiar with Judaism would have been familiar with. You have the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, you go through and the first room you encounter is that holy place. And this is where priests would go into and out of to, to, to take care of their daily duties. But then just beyond the holy place, the ESV calls it the most holy place. Some of your translations probably say the holy of holies. And this was the most sacred place. This is where God's presence was to dwell. And we're going to read about this in just a moment. But this was sacred. This was set apart. But just to understand within this system, to get to God's presence, you had to be the high priest on behalf of the people. That it wasn't just nobody went into and out of the Holy of Holies. You had to be the high priest. There wasn't access to God, just the high priest. And that's where he continues in verse number six. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." So what is he referring to? He's referring to the Day of Atonement. And we've talked a little bit about it before, that this was such a 
sacred and solemn moment that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer this sacrifice on behalf of the people. But it was so serious that in order for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, he had to have a rope tied to his ankle. Why? Because it was so holy and so serious that if the high priest went in there without, with unconfessed sin or some type of blemish, God would strike him dead in the Holy of Holies. And so you don't just go running in there after him. He had to be drug out by the rope. This is how serious this is. That God's holiness is nothing to play with. It's nothing to toy with. So he says the high priest would go in there to offer these sacrifices. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So the way to God, the way into God's presence is closed under this system. And this is what we see all throughout the Old Testament that they have the tabernacle and they would go to offer sacrifices. But presence with God was closed off. There was a no entry sign. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Notice that. that these offerings are made year in and year out, but they cannot perfect. What is the author of Hebrews saying is that Really, all it's doing is just making this continual offering that, that may outwardly appease some things, but it really offers no transformation. It doesn't actually change anything. That's why time and time again throughout the Old Testament, they have to continually come back to offer again. They have to continually go back and sacrifice again and again and again. Why? Because it's not a perfect sacrifice. Which then brings us to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." 
that Christ himself enters into the holy place. He acts as the high priest and he steps in and he does not bring with him the blood of goats and calves, but he enters in with his own blood. That's why a perfect savior is absolutely necessary. Why? Because he offers his own blood. It is through Christ offering his own blood, he secures an eternal redemption. That our redemption is not contingent on whether or not we mess it up next week. Our redemption is not contingent. Well, we better hope we make it to next year so we can offer a sacrifice again. We better make it to next week so we can offer a sacrifice again. No, it is eternally offered. He says, securing an eternal redemption. He says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? How much more? You see, they had this system. That they had to continually offer sacrifice that could not perfect, that could not finish. But then Christ comes and he steps into the holy place to offer a sacrifice that could perfect, that could finish what it starts. Christ is the one who offers himself as the high priest. And this is why it's, it's so important. This is, this is why this scene then makes sense as we're reading through the Gospels. And Christ cries out on the cross. And what happens? The temple is torn open. Why? Because he offered the sacrifice that blood, that bulls and goats could not do. Thus, the no entry sign is broken half allowing us to come to the Father by his blood. Even though we were enemies, even though we were estranged, even though we were far off from God, even though we wanted nothing to do with God, the no entry sign is broken and on the floor through the blood of Christ. He paid that debt. So what do we see? That redemption comes through his blood. And we've got to understand this this morning, church. When we talk about the gospel, redemption does not come through our own efforts. It does not come through our own ability. It does not come through our own willpower. It comes through his blood. 
You see, if it could come through my own efforts, if it could come through me finding the ability in and of myself to pull myself up by my bootstraps and get my life right, then I have a reason for boasting. I have a reason to say, look at me. But as Paul elsewhere says, there's, there's no room for boasting. Why? Because I didn't do it. He did it. The redemption comes through his blood. But then second, in Romans 8, redemption results in our standing in Christ. Redemption results in our standing in Christ. I absolutely love this phrase, and we see it repeatedly all throughout the New Testament. It's a little phrase, and it's easy to skim over. In Christ. That when we talk about salvation, we, we typically say things like, I'm, I'm saved, I'm, I'm, I'm born again. And, and those, are, those are good biblical terms, but the term that is most used to describe salvation throughout the New Testament is not saved or born again. It is in Christ. That I am found in Christ. So Romans 8, redemption results in our standing in Christ. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we talked about the bad news last week. The fall, we are broken, we are sinful. And we bear the weight of that. That we don't get to pass the buck on that. We don't get to say, I, I'm broken and sinful because of somebody else. No, we own our sin. But through the work of Christ, what Paul says is what? There is now no condemnation. Like, like not even a little bit. There is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation any longer. Why? Because who can actually condemn you? If it is the Father who sees his perfect son, sees his son's righteousness over you, who can condemn you? He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This term law here is referring to controlling forces. Are we controlled by the spirit or sin and death? And he says, for God has done what the law weakened by flesh can't, could not do. You have to understand if we want to, if we were to base our righteousness off of our adherence to the law, the law can't do it. Why? Because our flesh is weak, but also the law in and of itself is not strong enough to do that. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in 
the flesh. I love that language. He condemned sin in the flesh. One commentator I read this week worded, worded it this way, that on the cross, Christ issued the death warrant of, for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That the righteous requirement of the law, that in order to enter into the presence of God, requires holiness and righteousness but we can't fulfill that. That comes solely through Christ. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. But notice this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's harsh language. That we have to understand the depth of our sin. In order to understand the depth of Christ's love and the depth of Christ's sacrifice, we have to understand the depth of who we were apart from Christ. Because notice what Paul says here. We were hostile to God. Like we weren't just kind of these morally neutral people. We weren't just kind of in between, a foot in both camps. But he uses precise language that we were hostile to God. That we could not please him. No matter how hard we may have tried we were enemies of God. And yet, he loved us in spite of that. Like it's easy to love the person that's lovable. Like that person that really likes you, the person that looks out for you, the person that, at, at your office that takes care of you. But what about the person in your office that's constantly trying to stab you in the back? I don't want to love that person. But God loved us when we were enemies of his. When we were hostile to him. That that's the depth of God's love. And that now we have moved not just from being hostile to him, to being in Christ. 
So real quick, as, uh, before we move on, I absolutely love this illustration. I saw it a couple weeks ago. I'm going to have Nelson come here real quick. Have Mike come here real quick. Quick, quickly, quickly, quickly. Come on, knees to chest, knees to chest. Yeah, y'all just stand right here. I won't make you walk up the stairs. Okay, Nelson, you stand right there. Mike, you stand right there. Okay. Taylor Quez, y'all come here. Brent, come here. David, come here. Let me see. Kurt, come here. Okay. All right, now I want all of y'all to stand behind Nelson. Okay. Come over here this, this way, just this way a little bit more. Right there, right there, right there. All right, now y'all make a single line, file line behind Nelson. Okay. Mike has no friends. <laughs> so here's the type of language that the Bible uses to describe salvation. I am either in Adam, Nelson is Adam, or I am in Christ. Mike is Christ. Okay. Congratulations, you've made it. <laughs> Hold on, not, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. So I am either in Adam or I am in Christ. That the, There's no in-between, there's no middle group. I am either in Adam, I'm still in my flesh, I'm still under the wrath and condemnation of God, or I am in Christ, I am in the Spirit, I am found in Him, and He bears the wrath and condemnation that was due to me. So here's how this works. We go about our life, and we hear the gospel proclaimed. We repent and we believe and we are moved from being found in Adam to now we are found in Christ. And then, then we go along. Taylor's still in Adam. Quez repents and believes the gospel. He is now found in Christ. And so what happens? You're looking at them and you are God the Father. And so what happens when we are found in Christ? He doesn't see you. He sees the righteousness of his son. And so we are found in him. We are covered in him. That you don't see those who are in Christ. You simply see Christ. That's salvation. But you see, those who are still in Adam, they, they're still living in their sin. And this takes a variety of different things, ways. Like, like Taylor's still in his sin. He's still in Adam. And it makes sense, not Taylor personally, just illustration. Taylor is a pagan living a wild life. Like it makes sense that he's in Adam. Let's just be honest, we, we come back here and, and, and Brent, he's in Adam, but he's your next door neighbor. He's just a normal middle, upper middle class guy who has a family, has 2.5 kids, the white picket fence, and is just living a good life. He would give you the shirt off his back, but there's the reality, he's still in Adam. But what's even scarier is that here's, here's David. And he's still in Adam. And he's on a church pew every Sunday. Not David personally. 
illustration. Like he's in life group. He comes to Wednesday nights. But yet he's still found in Adam. Why? Because his rebellion is not living as a wild pagan. His rebellion is masked and covered up with religious activity. And can we just be honest, that is the most dangerous place to find yourself. Because he's living his life trying to live according to the law, trying to be a good person, trying to obtain righteousness and favor. But yet he's still in Adam. He's not found in Christ. He's still found in Adam. Does that mean then we come over here to those who are in Christ that these two have perfect lives? No. They still wrestle. They still struggle with sin. They still struggle with temptation. But what happens? They are covered by his righteousness. They're not covered by their own righteousness. They're covered in his righteousness. That he takes their sin and grants to them his righteousness. You see, this is why the fall is important. Because as Adam sinned, sin entered into the world and we came in line of him. But as Christ comes and enters into the world, he's the second Adam. That the first Adam came to bring death, the second Adam came to bring life. So y'all can make your way back to your seat. This is why the fall is important. That we are either found in Adam or we are found in Christ. This is the language that scripture speaks of for salvation. That I'm either in Adam or I am in Christ. That in Adam there is condemnation. But in Christ there is now no condemnation. So this brings us to our central idea this morning. It's just rather simple. We've probably heard this before. Redemption is Christ paying a debt we could not pay and giving us a life we could not earn. That's all redemption is. It's not some crazy, complex theological concept. That you and I had a debt before a holy God that we could not pay. And so what happens? Christ steps onto the scene to pay that debt. But not only that, he then turns around and grants us life. As we begin to close, the band comes back to the stage. As I've done, I want to give you a few points of application. I'm wrapping up quickly. First, our sin is placed upon Christ. When we think about redemption, we must understand that our sin is placed upon Christ. 
I know we struggle with this, we wrestle with this. And just as a pastor, I sit down with people and try to wrap their minds around, could Christ forgive me of this? Could Christ, did Christ know I was going to do this? And I want you to understand this this morning. Because we talk about past sins, present sins, future sins. That as Christ goes to the cross, every sin of your life was a future sin. You weren't there yet. And so every misstep, every sin, every iniquity is placed upon Christ. Those sins that you committed before you came to know Christ, those sins that you're struggling with right now, and hear me, the sins that you will commit tomorrow, all of them have been placed upon Christ. But then point number two, Christ's righteousness is placed upon us. You see, he does not save us and leave us in a neutral position. He doesn't deal with the negative and then say, okay, now you go figure it out. But rather, his righteousness is placed upon us, just as we talked about when the Father looks at us. We are clothed in his righteousness. I'm not clothed in my own righteousness. I'm clothed in his righteousness. So not only does he take, this is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, that he takes our sin, he takes our iniquity, he takes our transgression, but then he turns around and he gives us his righteousness. He gives us that. So when we stand before God, not clothed, in my own righteousness. I'm clothed in the righteousness of his darling son. But then number three, from beginning to end, redemption is entirely the work of Christ. Like there is no aspect of redemption that we contribute to. Like our salvation is not a partnership between us and God working this thing out. It is entirely the work of Christ. To, to quote the, the old saying, the only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. It is entirely the work of Christ. But then number four, the work of redemption brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We saw last week the impact of the fall was that we were born into spiritual death and our lives will end with physical death. But through the work of redemption, we are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. That we are brought from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The redemption does that. But then lastly, and this is, I wrestle whether or not to go into this point, but I think it's necessary because I'm getting ahead of myself for a couple of weeks. But it's this, the new life we have is lived from redemption, not for redemption. So Pastor Zach, what do you, what do you mean by that? 
that through the work of Christ, the life that I now live, I am not living so that God would accept me, so that God would love me, so that God would care for me, so that God would do this or would do that. The life that I now live is lived from redemption. I have been loved. I have been cared for. God has done this. God has done this. So now I live this life. I'm not living for redemption. I am living from redemption. And those two things are vastly different. You see, if I'm constantly in the hamster wheel, going maybe if I just give a little more, maybe if I just do this a little more, maybe if I just come to church more, maybe then God will start caring for me. Maybe then God will start loving me. That hamster wheel gets old after a while. But if I understand I already have been loved, I already have been cared for, then my ministry is not for redemption, it's from redemption. My giving is not for redemption, it's from redemption. That the redemptive work of Christ is the starting point for everything else in my life. Not the goal I'm trying to attain. So as we close this morning, the question's rather simple. Are we in Christ or are we in Adam? That's the gospel proclamation, that's the good news. We have to understand the bad news first. But the good news is this, that Christ goes in your place. You can't pay that debt, but Christ goes for you. So do you believe that today? Are you found in him? bearing your sin and you clothed in his righteousness or are you still found in Adam still found in your sin in your righteousness and then those of you that are in Christ those of you that are believers followers after Christ the question is rather simple as well are you living from redemption or for redemption? Are you living in that hamster wheel or are you walking in the freedom that Christ has provided you? If you need to come pray, this altar's open. If you need somebody to pray with, I'll be standing over here to the side. Let's answer those questions this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. God, we thank you for your redemptive work that when we could not pay the debt, when we could not come to you, when your presence had a no entry sign, the son comes walking in with his own blood. 
to open up the gates so that we would cope. So God, would you speak to our hearts today? God, pray for the one that's sitting here that recognizes and goes, I'm still in Adam. God, would today be the day that they would come to know you, that they would move from being in Adam to being in Christ. And as well for that person that's sitting there, they know you, they're in Christ, but they're living their lives for redemption instead of from redemption. God, would you take this gospel truth and nail it deep into their souls? God, we love you. We praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and respond today. My heart has been in your eyes long before my first breath and running time this morning, but it'll be okay. Um, and so I'll, I'll shorten next week's up. Um, nah, probably not, but 
I'll try to. All right. um, so I just want to go over a couple quick things with you, just uh, some announcements, some things we're excited about, things that are coming up. And uh, one of the things just kind of been working through and praying through just really since, since the time we got here is really kind of our, our discipleship strategy as a church. And so I want to just take a second to talk about some upcoming things, just kind of our large group discipleship here at Airline. And so if we go to the next slide. And so really large group discipleship takes place here at Airline in two primary avenues. And so first, of course, we have life groups. And so these, these take place right before worship, 9.15 every Sunday. And then we have our midweek. And so for adults, these are midweek Bible studies. And so I just want to talk through a couple things that's going to be coming up here at the church. And so let's talk first about our midweek. So if we go to the next slide. So here's what we're going to do. We're kind of changing up our structure of Wednesday nights for adults. We're still going to have Wednesday night supper. There's still going to be children's ministry. There's still going to be youth ministry. But for adults, we are starting something new. We're calling our midweek equip classes. And we're taking this really from Ephesians 4.12, which Paul instructs the leaders of the church to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, that's the goal of pastoral ministry, that's the goal of church leadership. The goal of church leadership is not for me to take on as much responsibility as I can, but to train and turn loose as much responsibility as I can. And so that's the heartbeat behind these new equip classes. And so what are they? They're going to be six to eight week either topical or kind of exegetical studies through books of the Bible for the purpose to equip you, to give you some more tools in the tool belt. And so if you're going to work and you're having gospel conversations, you may have some more tools in there. Or maybe it's just your own personal walk with Christ that you could say, hey, I, I could use those tools in my own tool belt. And so I encourage you to look at those. And so that's, that's the purpose behind it. And then, so when do they begin? Wednesday night, August 23rd is when they're going to begin. And so August 9th, we're going to be having a prayer gathering here at the church, just praying for this upcoming school year. And then as we've already shared, you've already seen the bulletin, August 16th, where it's going to be a community block party with an emphasis on serving and reaching our community as a united church coming together to serve our community. And then we'll be back into a normal Wednesday night schedule on the 23rd with youth and children ministry and then these new equip classes. And so the very first class is just going to be just one. And so I'll be teaching on how we got the Bible. And so I, I enjoy this subject. I love this subject. So if you've ever been curious as to how the Bible came to be, so how you are now sitting with uh, maybe a leather bound collection of 66 books in a particular translation, encourage you to be a part of that class. But then as well, I encourage you to be a part of it because as a church, we believe that the scripture is foundational to all that we do. And so we need to understand that scripture is sufficient and what that means. And that scripture is inerrant and in what that means. So I encourage you to be a part of that coming up on August 23rd. And then after that 
class, what we're going to do is we're going to start having multiple classes going on at the same time for those six to eight week periods. And so you'll have a choice. Maybe it's a, it might be a ladies class. It might be a men's class. It might be a co-ed class. It might be multiple co-ed classes. And you have the choice of, okay, hey, this is something that's in interest me. I want to go be a part of this equip class. All right, so that's going to be our structure for Wednesday nights moving forward for adult studies. All right, if you have questions about it, come see me. love to talk to you about it. But August 23rd, we'll be rolling into that with how we got the Bible. And then after that, we'll be having multiple classes after that first seven weeks or so. All right, there's, well, some other things we're excited about. Let's talk about life groups. All right, next slide. So renewed vision and new opportunities for life groups. So life groups, why do our life groups exist? First and foremost, to find community and grow together in the faith. That's the main thrust of our life groups, that we want to find community and grow together in the faith. And so what changes are taking place? We're going to be shifting some classrooms around. All right, so don't get nervous. We're still working out where every class is going to be, but there's going to be some classes that are going to move downstairs, all right, and, we're going to have, and then as well, we're going to be starting some new classes and restructuring some classes. All right, so for example, Whitney and I will be leading a class for younger families. And so this is engaged, newlywed, no kids, to kind of younger kids. All right, so Whitney and I will be leading that class. With that being said, Kirk, I didn't know the right word to use for you. Mature families. Not that young families aren't mature. I just didn't want to put old in there. Okay. But with that being said, Kirk will be taking kind of the, you know, mid, you've got middle school age kids, high school age kids, college age kids, kind of that age range and up will then be Kirk's new class. And that will be downstairs. All right, and again, we'll get all the room assignments out to you in the upcoming weeks. And then as well, Mike will be starting a men's class. And so when's all that happening? August 20th. So we've got a lot of things coming out that's going to be taking place that week. And so everybody's classes are going to stay exactly where they are for the next few weeks. And then August 20th will be the first Sunday where we're starting those new classes, meeting in new locations. And so don't freak out next week and be like, I don't know where my class is. You're still in the same spot. Okay, August 20th will be the date that we roll those things out and start those new opportunities. So I encourage you. Pray about it. If you're not plugged into a life group, come talk to me. Come talk to Mike. We'd love to get you plugged into a life group as we find community and grow together in the faith. And so with all that being said, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to ask Mike if he'll close us in prayer. And if you're visiting with us, we'd love to connect with you. If you've got one of those connect cards or if you just have a prayer need or concern, we'd love to spend some time with you out in the foyer. But Mike, will you close us in prayer? I will. I will close us in prayer. Uh, just is to say this, if we're calling Kirk's group the matured adults, what are we calling yours, Nelson? <laughs> Sun, seeking the sun, amen, S-O-N, amen. That's good. Let's pray together. Thank you all for being here today. God, we love you, and God, we thank you for being able to be in your house and bring you honor and bring you glory. Pray, God, that every song we've sung, every word that's been spoken, 
as God brought you honor. And God, thank you for the wonderful message this morning, the clarity of the, the greatness and the work of the gospel. Thank you for our pastor for bringing that to us this morning, God. And we just look forward to this week and everything you have in store for us. Pray for Wednesday night as we meet and we fellowship and and God, just meet some new friends at Longwood Park. I pray for that time together. And, and God, everything else that goes on this week, I just pray that you'd be right in the middle of it, guiding us, helping us to be pleasing to you in all that we do. We love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.